Welcome to MSP Mindset with Damian Stevens, where we have real, no BS conversations with real MSPs who have real struggles. We dive into all things business, including marketing, culture, work-life balance, and more, all to help you grow your business, think differently, and get out of your comfort zone. Right, we are going live a little early here because we've got a lot of demand. Uh, I was just talking with uh, Marcus Olson backstage is our guest today. And uh, what I actually didn't mention, Marcus, we have hundreds and hundreds of registrants. So a lot of people interested in Gee. in this. So so I'm excited to kind of talk um, today and uh, and kind of see where things end up. So, so we're live. I've got my folks troubleshooting this just to make sure everything looks good. So I figure we will just hang out for a moment. Guys, this is Marcus Olson. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him, but welcome, Marcus. I wish you would have said it was like two people watching. <laughs> the last thing I want to hear is that hundreds of people. Are well, hundreds of people register. I'm sure only two will show up, so no Good. big deal, right? You know, uh, yeah, that's I'm always better in, small, I'm better in small crowds. That's right, I am too. Yeah, the big groups are not not for me. So this is why I love kind of a one on one chat. So you were, I know we'll talk about a lot, but maybe pre show you were talking about culture a little bit. So I know this is. Something I wasn't going to get into, but backstage, I would just love to hear about your view on that. Uh, well, how long do we have before <laughs> we need to actually go go on with the show? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, culture is, you know, I don't know who said it, but uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, but what if it's both? Um, you know, so I, I think... Culture is is great in smaller companies. It sets the stage. You know, gets you know, it's so important when the companies are smaller, and and it's important that it's all in unison. And then the culture just takes a life of its own as a company scales, mm-hmm. becomes more, if you will. It just it's baked into the DNA. Right. Um, but culture was huge and still is huge, obviously, for our company. Um, but it's also changing. You know, I, I think it needs to be defined. I think a lot of people just say culture. Well, culture is different all throughout the, the world. I mean, what is your culture? And I think as a company scales, it really needs to start to define its culture in more tangibles and less superlatives, because what happens is people that join the company start thinking that their perception of culture is the culture that it should be. And so that's just something we've learned as we've scaled from, you know, whatever, five, 10 employees to hundred plus that it's like we had to start defining our values more clearly and our culture more clearly. And um, our things have evolved over time um, to being like, hey, you know, bias fraction to, well, what does that specifically mean? And define what that means, right? Um, and, and that's because otherwise it tends to take a life of its own. But yeah, culture is obviously um, critical, but it's also just table stakes these days if you're building a company. Yeah, I feel like it's a horse that's beaten to death at this point. Like, yeah company needs some sort of culture. It's a talent war out there. That's right. Well, with that, let's let's kind of kick off the time. Everybody that's joining us, joining right now, we got people joining. So we've got a lot to talk about. We're going to kind of kick off the show officially, a little backstage preview. What's to come, guys? Hey, guys, welcome to MSP Mindset. Guys, we just rebranded from DamienStevens.live to MSP Mindset. So just in case you were looking for one or the other, uh, you're in the right place if you're like if you'd like to learn about business and specifically growing an MSP. Uh, we are MSP Mindset on all the channels and your favorite podcast listening places. Today, I'm really really excited to have Marcus Olson. He's the founder and CEO of Pliancy, one of the fastest growing MSPs in the industry. And we're going to talk about how he grew his business so fast, what 
change we see in the industry and how this could catch everybody off guard. So I think there's a lot of things involved in how he grew in terms of niche, et cetera. So I'm not going to spoil it all, but just to give you a quick, for instance, and I did drop a comment. So uh, say hello or let us know kind of where you're listening. uh, If you're listening live, where you're listening from. So with that, let me just kind of introduce Marcus uh, and then bring him in. So Marcus started the IT space kind of young and he built RPGs for his TI-84 calculator, teaching himself basic programming language. So if anybody can, can relate to that, he realized that all these small companies really didn't have the tech to collaborate better and work faster. And he's going to give you the really juicy details, but he grew his MSP from six to about 130 employees in just five years, over 30 million in annual revenue, seven offices across the U.S. So he's best known for his Visionary ambition, technology, radical empathy. So, and he's joining us live. I asked everybody to, to um, kind of comment. He is joining us live from Austin, Texas, and I am in beautiful Greenville, South Carolina. So, Marcus, welcome. Thanks, Damien. Uh, appreciate the the info uh, or the the introduction. Um, <laughs> but yeah, glad glad to be here. Awesome. All right. Well, just a couple of things. We got folks. Uh, we've got. Um, let's see. Andrew, greetings from Niagara, Canada. Um, uh, got sounds like a lot of different people just commenting. Uh, Atomic Technologies, and it wanted to say hello. So we've got folks on YouTube watching, including hiking the gorge. It looks like uh, Morgan on uh, LinkedIn. So keep the comments going, guys. If there's any questions you have for Marcus, we are watching the feed. Um, and, uh, we will definitely work in as many questions as possible. Although we have a lot of interesting ones to start with Marcus. So I'll feature one more and then we'll kind of jump in. Yeah. Hey Paul. Um, we got Doug from Indianapolis. Thanks Doug. So, uh, yeah, guys keep commenting. This is wonderful. Um, I wanted to get us started though. We got a lot to talk about. So, or at least I have a lot of questions for you and maybe others will too. Tell me about growing from six to 130. And if you don't mind, kind of start with the, was it just straight up? Like you just went one, two, three, four, five, six, and you know, everything was wonderful or. No, I mean, it's, it went one, two, three, and then a, about a decade went by and then it went six, seven, eight, 10, 20, 100, 100, you know, like it, 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 it was a long grind, um, with only like three of us, uh, for over a decade. Um, and at some point in time, we just, looked at like kind of what we were doing. We looked at the industry um, and we just decided to completely abandon everything that was known in this industry and all the things that we felt were kind of holding us back and said, we're going to do it our own way. And that's when we converted from what we were calling ourselves TSG back then to pliancy. And then that's when the company took off. Um, We didn't receive funding. We didn't have any windfall of cash. We just simply said, we're abandoning all of the tools that exist and all the approaches that we've been following like sheep, and then kind of relaunched the company in a completely different way with a completely different approach. Uh, and that's what caused the company to go crazy. And that would have been like 2017, I think, um, somewhere in that range, uh, 2018, I think, beginning of 2018 is when we launched the new brand and officially called ourselves Pliancy, and we started that process in early like two, 2017. Okay. Unpacked a little bit more for me. Um, got greetings from Oregon, Direct Line IT joining us. Thanks, guys. But unpack that, Marcus, uh, because you said a lot, right? First of all, maybe I mean, what was it working? I can unpack. I mean, 
like the first, the first challenge is like everyone always goes, well, what do you mean you abandon the industry? What do you mean you abandon kind of like, well, you got to understand like if we're all buying our meat and our buns and everything from the same, you know, supplier and trying to claim that we're doing it differently, it's impossible. Right. I mean, this industry has, is a victim of asking others in the industry what they do. Um, and if you go to any sort of forum or any kind of low, you know, it's all, it's all people running three to five person MSPs asking other people that run three to five person MSPs, what do they do? And it's this conformity, um, that is happening in this industry that is preventing people from really, um, building meaningful, uh, you know, brands and companies in this industry because they all go to the same drinking you know, hole to get their information and what they can do. And then of course the people poisoning that well are the two or three private equity firms that own every piece of technology in this entire stack. And so, you know, it's controlled really by just two or three and it all plugs into itself. And if you're buying from that, well, then you're just a franchise of the industry. And I know that's really painful to hear, but that's really what you are. You're just a franchise of the supplier. And you can't do it any differently if you're going to keep buying the same tools, solutions, and processes that everybody else is doing. And you really know that you're in an industry that's like that and it's been commoditized when people start selling you on how to do it differently. Buy my course, et cetera. There's a lot of that. Books being written, how to operate in this industry, et cetera. And I think that that you know, is the acceleration of the commoditization and race to the bottom in this industry. Yet, paying attention to the other side of this industry is it's growing at 14% or so compounded annual growth. It's a freight train of growth. And, and I think it just peaked early and we're on the wrong side of that curve from a tools and technologies perspective, buying from stuff that was built 15, 20 years ago when the problems were different and the approaches were different. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting. So they, like that was kind of us saying, you know what, we're done with all that tooling. We're out. We abandon it all. We don't use any of it. We're not on ConnectWise, Kaseya, Autotask, that, none of that. Um, and we started just buying individual tooling and connecting that and developing our own solutions to really say, we're going to find the best of breed and we're going to build our own approach to doing this um, with far better technology. Um, and that's really been a long process for us. It didn't start there. It started really with looking at solutions that were enterprise like Okta and others and saying, how do we use this tooling and make it digestible for small companies? Um, and it's evolved now to really us building our own universal API effectively internally um, with our own CLI that we use for managing all the things that we do. And we've kind of like built an operating system, if you will, internally that we keep adding and building more componentry that plugs into so, so we, we don't at, have a PSA. You had me at Universal API, and we built our own operating system. Uh, so Atomic Technology says, I, I agree, cookie cutter doesn't work for everyone. Um, and Matt, thanks for uh, joining us this afternoon from Boca Raton. So I appreciate that. Um, I'm going to argue, though. I'm going to argue that cookie cutter does work for everyone. That's the problem. Okay. You know, you can build a very small lifestyle business following the cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to break apart from that though, if you continue to be cookie cutter. I mean, that's any low barrier to entry business. You can literally go show up and buy all the different tools and solutions you need to get started with a low effort because it's a cookie cutter and you'll build a meaningful, small little business. But at the point that you want to go past that, you have to abandon all of that because that will be your anchor. Um, yeah, correct. It will not scale, right? Rob, Rob at Atomic says, it, yeah, that won't scale. So, uh, getting some good questions. We're going to get into those, but I wanted to unpack a couple of things. We talked backstage. I think I know a little bit of it, but 
you, I think you told me something that you were just, for lack of a better way of saying it, a normal MSP doing everything. Um, and what was it that drove you to, to do that change? You, did, did you look at something and said, there's something we deliver better here than we, than other services? I got tired of doing it. Okay. I mean, I got tired. I mean, you can go ask anyone that's probably, I mean, the average MSP owner is probably about 40 years old. They've been doing it 15 years. Um, guilty as charged. I am too. Um, and I, I got to this point where the reason I got into the industry and the reason I started the company was no longer enjoyable. I felt like I was tied to in, to all these solutions and things that just weren't interesting to me anymore. And it was just, I'd lost my passion for it. And so really it got to this point where I said, kind of F it. You know, what, what have I got to lose? This small business I'm tied to that's not enjoyable, that's grinding me out 16, 18 hours a day, seven days a week. What have right. I got to lose? If anything, I've got my health to gain. And so I said, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. You know, and I'm going to find others. And I happen to know some really talented people at that time. And I said, I'm just going to do it the way I want to do it. And I'm going to build this company the way I want to do it. And if I lose the company I had, big deal. It wasn't that big anyway. You know, it was two, three people. Wasn't that big of a deal. So I think it was like this exhaustion, this point of exhaustion where I said something has to change. Um, and that's really came from being surrounded by some of the most successful companies ever, which I support a lot of venture firms. We support a lot of venture firms. We support a lot of really bold um, startups. And watching what they were doing, they weren't consuming content from others in their industry. They were consuming content from people in similar roles from far more successful companies. So they were, how do you market? How do you brand? How do you hire? How do you retain, uh, retain talent? How do you do these things? And they were listening to these fascinating podcasts. They were it was just a different ecosystem. But if you go and look in the MSP industry, that doesn't exist. I used to go into Reddit. I used to try and find that, but it was all, what, what solution do you use here? What do you charge? What do you charge? It was just like, it wasn't interesting to me. And so I got to be surrounded with companies that were doing incredible things by proxy. And while sure, I'm fixing the laptop this decade ago and I'm fixing the laptop, I'm just listening you know, to these conversations of these people building far more important, bigger companies. And I'm going, oh, that's smart. Oh, we need to do that. And I just changed where I consumed all my content. And I started instead consuming content from people in completely different industries. I mm-hmm. wanted to learn from them. How did they do it? How, you know, and I got away from my own industry. And I think that's when I got more excited about it again. And it re-sparked that interest. So Brandon says it's like somebody coming for blood every minute. Yeah, when when you're just circling around and around, right? So yeah. I want to unpack that. You were frustrated. You were kind of maybe burned out to a certain degree. And, um, but then there's a, you were working for certain clients and then you decided to pick a niche. Help me connect those yeah. dots. Is that right? I mean, once again, you learn, right? I learned the reason you choose a, a, a niche is because you have a lower effort for attracting new uh, clients because there's just this inferred, you must really know venture firms because you support 40 of them. So you start to like achieve this network effect and then your cost of acquiring these customers goes down, which means you have better margins, which means you get to invest in a better product and better quality, which the flywheel starts. And anyone here listening, another great thing to read is don't read the e-myth. Stop reading that crap and go read the flywheel, right? You know, these are systems that are far more applicable 
um, and, and more timely. And so I started looking at everything as a flywheel, which is like, okay, if we can acquire customers for less cost, we can deliver a better product. If we deliver a better product, it drives more referrals. If we drive more referrals, it lowers the cost to acquire the customer, and thus the flywheel begins. And so we started just really hyper-focusing on these little flywheels. And these flywheels would take us years to accomplish. I mean, every goal at Pliancy is like a five-year to 10-year goal. You know, it's always like the long, looking at the long haul and then just breaking that down into actionable steps and then being patient. Um, one of our values is persist with patience. And it's just really baked into our DNA. You know, we're just slowly chipping away at these big flywheels um, because once they deliver, they really deliver in a meaningful way. But anyway, going back to the vertical, the, the idea that you compete in a vertical or a, or a niche really just is a really effective way to um, build strong networks to to really just achieve that flywheel of referrals. You know, if you're doing everything for every customer, you're not gonna you're not gonna really build a flywheel there uh, because you're distributing um, your experiences and your quality to too many different markets, and you're not really hitting that network effect. Mm-hmm. So when we got into life sciences, this would have been three years ago now, and we're a leader in life science now. I think we have probably more life science across all the states than, than anybody else, um, certainly the biggest names. And that's only took us three years to accomplish that because we went into it and we went hard into it and we did whatever we could to deliver impressive value and, and quality. And we just kept hammering at that. And eventually it created this flywheel now where it's like, I think 20% of the, the, the biggest names in life science every year that launch join pliancy, which that's a lot to have 20% of a market effectively yeah. Um, joining you. Um, and that's what obviously built a lot of our growth. Um, but we've already saturated venture capital. I mean, we are absolutely without question, probably two to three times more venture firms that we support than the next competitor. But that took 10 years. So that you, didn't you happen picked, overnight. So you picked venture. Um, yeah. and, a, and, a, and a, you're, you're dropping a lot of great points, but most of the people I talk to, frankly, are sitting there going, gosh, how do I even start? Why didn't you pick agriculture? Why didn't you pick attorneys? clients are today. You might find that you have 10 different clients you support, maybe 15, but two of them are insurance brokers. Well, guess Mm -hmm. what? You're an insurance broker MSP now. Focus on what they need. Get really good at it. They'll tell another and another and another. Be patient for five years. And the next thing you know, you're the leader in that particular vertical. And it's, you know, somebody told me the best businesses are built by saying no, not yes. You Mm -hmm. know, and it's really about you saying, okay, well, this really interesting big client just came. I know it's not an insurance client or whatever, but we should just take them. There's nothing like falling victim to him to, to that. You know, oh, you I've have to really stop. I mean, small business owners are some of the most fearful people I've ever met. Right. They're constantly afraid of where their next meal is coming from. They're constantly afraid that their business has no sustainability. Um, they just operate from this place of fear all the time afraid to charge the clients the appropriate amount to deliver quality, afraid to change things, afraid to let go of toxic employees. Afraid. It's just they're operating from fear nonstop. Um, and so I think you know where we really became successful is we stopped being afraid and we just started saying, no, no, we're not going to do this. No, we're not going to do that. No, we're not going to support that. And just over time, that really meant that what we did say yes to, we delivered on. Um, and then that's what really built our reputation in the industry. So yeah, I, I mean, you, the first place you start is just by by looking at what you're doing, looking at where you want to go, and then being disciplined and patient. 
it's not like this industry is going anywhere. I know there's a lot of people, and yes, people like to use me on these podcasts all the time of like fear mongering of I'm saying the industry is going away, it's going to die, hurry up, get in the lifeboat, you know, ship sinking. It's not, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, it's a $150 billion industry. If somebody carves out $10 billion for themselves, great. There's still $140 billion out there. There's still going to be a million different ways to, to shave that cat. Um, and certainly multiple different people will be doing it in different ways. So I wouldn't be afraid that you have to hurry to do these things. You know, just just be disciplined in where you want to go and slowly go after it. Um, and, and ultimately, I think that will be the first step. And then after that, there's millions of other steps. But but start with that. Yeah, Ina Corp says, good to hear a different route. So appreciate that. And something you covered earlier, I guess Dan Miller was asking, you're talking about the same things, the same people talking about the same things. So maybe, you know, not trying to name names, he did. But, it, you know, it's just too much peer groups, too much association breeding, uh, too, yeah, much, homo- too much homogenous thought. Stop. Don't yeah. go. There are some millions of different programs out there that tell you how to build a meaningful business. And that is far more important than reading something that's specific to this industry. And the reason I say that is because we are in a commodity. This is currently a commodity. And I would argue that it shouldn't be. I think that the work that we're doing and um, the needs are not should not be commoditized. But the fact of the matter is it has been commoditized. And so really the way you win in a commodity is by building a meaningful business. It has very little to do with the tools and the solutions and things like that. That's table sticks. Um, to win in a commodity, it's really about building trust, meaningful brands. There's a lot of different things you need to do, but it's really just building really effective businesses because you're getting attacked from every angle. Um, and so I would spend more time listening to podcasts like How I Built This with Guy Raz, um, finding like Masters of Scale um, from, from uh, Reed Hoffman, I believe it is. There's a billion different podcasts and things you should be listening to. And it's going to feel like pie in the sky when you're listening to it, which is like you got maybe one or two of you and you're fixing laptops and you're listening to this podcast about how they scaled a $10 billion business. And it's going to feel like it's so far out of reach and it's impossible, but it isn't. And you need to listen to that because you need to be learning from those types of people, not somebody that bailed on their own industry to sell you a book on how to do it. Because you're certainly not going to build anything meaningful with that approach. Um, and I think it's it's big enough that you can carve out your own way of doing these things. You don't you don't have to follow the herd. I mean, that's just my opinion, but. Yeah, well said. So if I understand you started with one niche, which yep. adventure later added another, but really focused on a single niche. And the other thing, I think others were listening, but I, I want to highlight this because this was really fascinating to me. It's, I think, scary to most to say, let's focus on a niche. Um, and, but it's Why? a whole other thing. You're yeah. turning away opportunity. You're turning it away, right? Most of us are going, man, making payroll is the goal, not uh, the real goal. And so there's that. But the other thing that's, to me, really uncommon is you didn't just buy whatever RMM or PSA is out there. Um, and I think you shared there's a reason why. If you share share more of like it wasn't just because you were too cheap to pay the per seat fee. We, we, bought, we bought every single one under the sun for five, six, seven years, and all of them were just a huge bear to work with. Um, it felt like you bought them, signed the contract, then never fully deployed them. They also were a massive security risk. Back in the day, um, we found risks, massive risks in just about all of them. Tried to communicate those risks to them. They weren't interested in those risks, hearing it. You know, They didn't take it seriously, and then years later, they got breached that same risk. 
Um, and we found those risks in other tools. And when we exposed them and brought them up to the vendors, they actually changed and fixed it. One of them is a well-known one that just about every MSP uses. They actually had their CTO call us, this is five years ago, sent us gift cards, fixed it right away, um, which was awesome. And the ones that didn't, we just had to abandon. We just felt like we were inviting like you know sheep into the wolves' den with some of these tools that just were highly risky. They had poor security. And if we get breached, that's our reputation. And so we had to abandon it. And it was painful at first because we lost some of the efficiencies of those tools. But then quickly, we started building far more efficient versions internally, um, which was really that universal API that I was talking about, where we just looked at all the different things we're doing and we tried to normalize that. So you know, we could basically build our own single pane of glass, which we eventually built. Um, and then we got to kind of do some interesting things once we started building that single pane of glass. We got to extrapolate some of the risk. For example, the majority of our consultants do not log into Okta here. They log into our platform, which controls Okta. And that means that now we don't have to worry about potentially risk of somebody that's never used Okta pressing the wrong button or breach of that individual, which then leads them into, you know, all these different tools. So it's like, yeah, we haven't solved all of it, but that's our goal is to figure out how do we reduce risk so that if somebody was be breached on appliances end, the impact is minimal. If an MSP today that has 100 employees or 50 employees was to get breached, one of their techs you know, was to get breached, holy moly. I mean, the access that they have, I mean, because a lot of the tools don't have good role-based access control and good segregation. So mm-hmm. if you're using some of these tools, I mean, if one person gets breached, it's like every client gets breached. I mean, it's insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to look at the type of client we serve. We couldn't have that. Um, so we started building our own solutions um, to kind of solve for that. And it, it's been highly effective at recruiting talent because the talent wants to work here because we work with cooler tools. Um, and the only do, way to do that, we had to kind of break away from the ecosystems that exist. Okay. Well, speaking of risk, we were talking about backstage about, and it may have been some time ago, but about backup, which is obviously backup and more specifically the process of backups and testing them and that sort of thing. Um and you said you'd, you'd had a horror story before or something close to oh, it. I mean, we've all had a horror story around backup. This would have been like 2008, 2009. Um, the very first variant of a crypto locker had just hit. And I mean, everyone that was experiencing crypto locker back in that day was experiencing it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we had a multi-layered strategy to backup for one of our particular clients. And it was, you know, we had DFSR. Okay, replicating files across all the different locations that they had. And then we had um, continuous backup on top of that. And then we had offsite backup, tape backup. And then we also had um, shadow copies. And shadow copies, if anyone here is as old as I am, remember that shadow copies was like such an amazing solution. Um, because if you had deployed shadow copies and set it to a really large amount, um, you kind of had this benefit of quick being able to recover things with the click of a button and also giving self-service to the end users to recover their own files. So anyway, when CryptoLocker happened back then, um, what was happening is a lot of the backup solutions were not aware of encryption or aware of this particular type of threat. And so it would back up garbage. Mm-hmm. And then it would propagate this garbage through all of the backups. So pretty soon, every backup solution that you have became effectively tainted. Um, and you would have had to go through millions of files to figure out what's actually encrypted, what isn't. You would have had to click on it. I mean, it was a nightmare. Um, but because we had a multi-layered backup strategy, we were able to recover those uh, you know, files very, very quickly and with no impact. Um, but many of the backup solutions had failed because they had picked up some of these encrypted files, which were propagating slowly throughout the network. You know, it wasn't like somebody got hit and then like an hour later, we're like, oh, crap. I mean, it was like that person walked away from their computer and made a bagel while it's like encrypting hundreds of files and then propagating them through DFSR. But yeah, anyway, that was... 
one of those things where it was like we had multiple different strategies. Thank, thank God. Um, and and you know, yeah, that was that's still to that day. Like we've never gotten hit with cryptographer since, um, and that's been over you know whatever 12, 13, 14 years. Um, thank God. But that was scary. I was like, yeah. what is this? Never seen it before. Yeah, and from what I hear, you're saying. It- Interestingly, if it was a Microsoft built-in volume shadow copy, <laughs> that was the thing. It wasn't was even a true tool. backup. That's right. not even supposed to be your backup. Um, right. But that was the most effective way to restore and identify uh, the problems because if the fi- timestamp, this was before they did timestamps. Mm-hmm. Um, so because the timestamp didn't change, then the file wasn't replicated into shadow copies. Now they got smart and they started like doing things with timestamps and stuff so that it would get picked up by your backup and propagate. Yeah. But this was like the very first variant. Yeah. Sorry, we went down tech talk there. No, 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 no. We'll get back to the business. On that note, guys, I just wanted to mention that this show is brought to you by Servocity Safe, where we manage backups for you. So if you would like to cut your support tickets in half and let us manage your backups, Servocity Safe includes that, includes daily testing of every single volume every single day. And we store your backups in tamper proof, immutable storage. Most importantly, what really separates us from every other vendor is you no longer have to babysit backups anymore, leaving you and your techs more time to grow and scale and differentiate because backups probably not what differentiates you. So a lot of what we're talking about today. So if you're tired of wasting time, dealing with failed backups, asking for your staff to deal with it when they don't want to, then just visit servocity.com slash call. I'll be happy to have a call with you. We can just geek out on process. Uh, if it makes sense for us to help you, great. Otherwise, we can talk about that and ping me if you like. I've been giving away our process nowadays so that you can steal our own process. Um, so let me bring Marcus back. I got a lot more to talk about, but Jeff um, says, when deciding to hyper-focus, do you recommend just building up in a single vertical regardless of size? And I guess the point they're trying to make is they don't take people under 15, but should they rethink that across a single vertical or what is your, what do you recommend to try to focus? Yeah. Let me blow your mind. We, we try to take clients only under 15, right? And, and that's probably very surprising to hear. And the reason why is um, we don't want to inherit technical debt, right? And so what we're really looking for is small clients we can bet on that we think will grow because yeah, they're not profitable when they're small. It's really hard to scale that. But um, if we can get in early, we can steer their their adoption of technology in the ways that we think is going to benefit the most. We can reduce talent, um, or I'm sorry, technical debt. Um, and ultimately, it's not about the size of the client that creates the impact from a network effect. It's about the amount of clients in that vertical that you support. So going after smaller clients in that same vertical, you get to kind of say things like, we support 45 venture firms. Well, yeah, four or five of them are the biggest names in the industry. Another 10 are midsize that you've certainly heard of if you're in the industry, but there's probably 10 or five that are all startups that you haven't heard of. But it doesn't really matter. It's that power in numbers when it comes to marketing, et cetera. So um, keep in mind, there's business models that are like, we're only going to go after big clients. There's ones that are only going to go after, you know, medium size. You have to be in this particular region. One of the things we did was we hyper-focused on a vertical and then also a region. And when I say region, I mean, you had to be within one mile of our address for us to support you. And that's because that had a great economy of scale. If I wasn't driving two hours, and I can't remember who it was, but somebody was telling me that they worked at an MSP 
where, um, and it's one of our employees, he's now a software engineer here, but um, he was telling me at one point in time, he had like clients that were like two hours apart from each other and he'd have to visit them in the same day. And I was like, that's just highly inefficient. Why were they retaining those clients out there? They should have let them go. Um, so yeah, hyper-focusing on efficiency um, so you can reinvest in your people, hyper-focusing on verticals. Don't worry about the size of the client. Worry at, at the beginning, you know, mind you, just worry about getting the clients in the particular industry so you can have reach in that industry um, and start to leverage that marketing. Yeah. Favorite thing clients used to ask, do you support any other venture firms? This is 10 years ago. Yeah, we only support venture firms. That's a really powerful thing to say when you're starting up your brand, you know, is to say, yeah, we only support people in this neighborhood. You know, I mean, it's just it's just so effective um, and it's far better than paying for advertising or paying for outbound, et cetera. Um, so, yeah. Sorry, I rambled there. My bad. No, no, no. It's a great question. Um, Marcus. We, we, we may not take all questions, but want to know if any of your solutions are in AWS or Microsoft Azure to reduce costs. Uh, maybe you can answer that, but also I guess I would be curious. Like you said, you decided to build all this, and there's a reason you decided to build all this, because you couldn't do this, from what I gather, in the normal RMM PSA tool market. So help us understand that. Yeah, all of our solution is in GCP. Um, so we use Google Cloud um, for all of our, all of our solutions. Um, we don't have any servers. We don't have any infrastructure. Um, we used to have um, all of our stuff in a data center. We had like four racks in a data center. We had virtual, you know, we were running all the latest uh, VMware stuff. We had solid state SANs. We were using vSAN. Like we had pressed VMware to its limits back in the day. And then we abandoned all of that and moved it all to GCP, um, but also started like a whole different process. We used to do private cloud back in the day, um, which many companies are still doing, but we stopped doing that five, six years ago. Um, but we started private cloud in 2008. So we were way ahead of the curve with private cloud back then, but we also saw that it didn't have a long tail. It didn't make sense to keep spinning up infrastructure like that. So six years ago, five years ago, we switched to everything to SaaS and shut down our data center. So everything's in GCP. Sorry, that was a long response there. It's in GCP and it's not cheaper always. It can be more expensive. You have to really focus on when you're using those types of providers. It's not about cost necessarily. Um, it's about being able to do things you couldn't do in traditional infrastructure, which would be like now you can replicate to a whole nother region or a whole nother thing with the press of a button and some dollars. Whereas if you had traditional infrastructure back in the day, that meant setting up a whole nother colo and paying for additional licensing with VMware and managing that. Whereas like now it's like press a button and boom, replicate. So tell me, we hinted on this before. Um, why did you decide? To, why did you need to? You tried everything else. Like, why did you need to build this? What was it you couldn't do? with your RMM or PSA that you can buy off the shelf? Well, back then there was no um, effective like SaaS versions of this. Like if you had Microsoft um, Office and you wanted to increment, de-increment licenses or whatever, like you had to go buy third-party enterprise tools to do that. Um, they really just, it was like disjointed. All of the solutions and tools that existed in our industry were all device focused. And our whole business model is user focused. So we really look at a user at a company, an employee at a company as like, that's the thing that we're managing. That's the number. That's what we bill against, et cetera. And yet the whole industry is still talking about how many servers do you have? How many printers do you have? Um, you know, how many devices do you have? And none of that really mattered to us. Um, that wasn't really what we build on. We didn't care. Um, and so we wanted to move to something that uh, basically had worked with our business model. And then second to that, the tools that we wanted to use were enterprise tools. And a lot of those enterprise solutions did not plug into the ecosystems of today. Okta 
still to this day doesn't have an MSP program, and yet we multi-tenanted their product five years ago. Um, we multi-tenanted Duo before Duo did that. So we are ahead of the market. We can take a solution, make it multi-tenant or whatever, because we have software engineers, et cetera, before the rest of the market can, which means that we're deploying solutions before our competitors can, means we're tailoring them to how we want to work with them. Um, and we're not really stuck with the limits of what the providers and the ecosystems are doing today. Like, oh, you can't do this until they integrate it with Kaseya or BMS or whatever it is. Oh, I can't invoice. I can't, it doesn't plug in. Next thing you know, you can't take advantage of the market and the opportunities and technology because it doesn't plug into your ecosystem yet. So you're always like following the market and you're only able to adopt new technology at the rate that the market can. And we just didn't want to be tied to that anymore. Um, but you got to remember like, that sounds daunting if I tell you that and you're sitting here and you're a three-person MSP that's just trying to make your payroll, you know, and you're going, well, wait, software engineers, aren't they like crazy expensive and like, hi, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. We didn't have software engineers. We, 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 the people here taught themselves software engineering and because they were passionate about the problem, that's how we eventually, eventually built that first MVP and just, you know, we used the resources we had and, and got to where we were. And now it's different, of course, but, you know, you just got to start with, something small and just chip away at it. There's no quick fixes. You know, there's no shortcuts here. We're all bootstrap business here. Nobody's going to invest in your MSP when you're three people. So, you know, you really just have to do it the hard way. Right. Well said. So Brandon asked something that I think is fairly relevant. Does there need to be a separation from the MSP model of service desk and VCIO and standards alignment and that sort of thing? That's a lot to, it's a lot. I mean, so what I'm trying to understand here is um, like a separation from the MSP model. I feel like they might be referring to kind of like the tiered approach. If I'm, if I'm understanding that correctly, we are a very anti-tiered approach um, because the biggest asset you have as a provider of anything, a service provider, whether it's an MSP, whether it's a law firm, whatever, is the relationships between your people and the client. Like that's, that's the most powerful asset you have. And the irony is that whenever I challenge um, an MSP or anyone, you know, to really have that account named approach or to really like focus on that, you know, consultant supports client type thing is they go, yeah, well, if the client, if the consultant leaves, they leave with all the clients and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, they're trying to, to, to index against a risk that hasn't come to fruition or has only come to fruition once. And the irony is like, we've never done that. We've always done named accounts. It's always a consultant that supports a client and they build these deep relationships and great communication. And then the consultant prefers that. The consultant wants to own the account and the client wants a single point of contact. It wins for both. And the idea that you would tail your business about what might happen if someone leaves is ridiculous. You, you need to ignore that. I mean, that's like the victim, you know, that's what happens when people and companies start listening to the 5% that are complaining and start solving for only their problems. And then next thing you know, the other 95% are like, what the hell is going on, right? You, you really need to listen to your fans. You need to look at the opportunity and keep tailoring towards that. Don't worry about the attrition if the consultant leaves and the clients follow them. 15 years, it's never happened. We, in fact, have had consultants leave and go work in-house at clients. They're still clients today, right? So that's that relationship that you built. So um, I think awesome. it's ridiculous when they're always like, oh, the consultant's going to leave and take the clients with. You know, first of all, if you respect the employees and whatever, the, you know, generally speaking, they're not going to try and, I mean, you know, that's pretty kind of malicious thing to do. And if the employer is treating you well, et cetera, you probably wouldn't want to do that. Um, but yeah. 
Um, yeah, my thought process is tiers suck. Tiers introduce complexity in your business. Um, tiers introduce communication challenges. Tiers um, create uh, throwing stuff over the fence, you know, aka problems of like, oh, it's their problem, you know, not my problem. Um, it also is inefficient because, it, you know, Dunning-Kruger effect at the lowest part of that interaction, which is, oh, your brand new service desk that doesn't have experience is supposed to handle things first. Well, guess what? They don't know what they don't know. And so you have huge efficiencies down there um, and the customers get upset because the person's trying to figure it out and they don't want to escalate because they're probably measured on how often they escalate. You know, oh, this person keeps escalating to the tier two. They're inefficient. They don't know what they're doing. So it's like you you get into this trap of like, short of it, I could go on, on and on and on. I personally don't think it's the right model, but there is a market for it, I'm sure. And there's plenty of people that have been successful with it. Um, we don't do that. We also don't do the service desk model, which is the model where you have somebody that goes on site, builds a relationship, but then also there's a service desk separate to that because that's once again, accountability challenge, which is like, and you can ask anyone that's been in this industry long enough as, a, as an employee will be like, I hate the service desk. All the consultants that go on site and have the direct relationships with the clients hate the service desk, you know, and it's because the service desk screws up and embarrasses them in front of the client, messes things up. It's all accountability and complexity challenges we choose to just not have. It's worked for us, you know. Um, take a quick question from Lauren, but I've got another question I want to ask you, which is how do you reinvest in your employees and how is that beneficial to growth? Because like you said, it's, I mean, I think we share something, at least I'll say my point of view is employees are what drive the business, not the clients, not the investors. Absolutely. Um, the challenge with that is like, it gets nuanced, which is this industry has a price anchoring problem. So there was a point in time where in this industry, it, it, you could charge far less because it was far less complex. It's right when Office 365 started to come out and SaaS solutions started to come out. You didn't need to know crap to be an MSP. You could just sign up for a couple of things. Next thing you know, you're pressing buttons and selling you know, Microsoft uh, Office 365 solutions. Go on Reddit and you'll see them all day long. Hey, I'm thinking about starting MSP. I've never done any of this before. I don't know anything about tech. What do I do? What button do I press? And you know, people like, you know, but there was this part where it got really easy. And so then there was a race to the bottom to compete on price. But it's trending the opposite way right now. It's getting far more complex these days. It's getting harder to get the talent, retain the talent. Security risks are going through the roof. You, you, the whole anchor of the industry is unfortunately too low to deliver on the promises that they're making. And therefore, they don't have money left over to reinvest into their people. And so it really starts with this industry fixing the price anchoring challenge that it has, which is hundred bucks, all you can eat all day support for a meaningful business is not going to actually check every box. It's not going to accomplish what it needs to accomplish. It's just false promises and hoping that you never figure it out. God forbid you figure out that your cybersecurity program doesn't exist and that the solutions and tools and the training, you know, like if the risks in this industry are through the roof. Um, but anyway, the point being, if you want to reinvest in your people, you need to charge the appropriate amount. And once you charge the appropriate amount, you can reinvest in your people, which will once again drive that flywheel of quality, which means mm -hmm. you're delivering better results, which are worth talking about, which drive more clients to your business. So it really starts with um, charging the appropriate amount so you can invest. And then um, investing in your people is really challenging. I just met with our learning and development team, um, which has some seriously ambitious goals over the next five um, to 10 years. And it's, you know, it's complex because to really invest in new people, you have to create incentives as well. Um, it's not just about giving them learning and development solutions like, hey, here's your plural site login. Here's your whatever. Go learn whatever you want. Or, hey, go get certs. 
You have to also tie that back to incentives, which is why are they doing that? Um, and then you have to measure it, make sure that you're deploying those dollars efficiently. Um, and that's why we hired a learning and development specialist about a year ago, actually more than a year ago. And she's amazing, Lisa. Um, don't try and poach her, I'll fight you. Um, but she is incredible. And the whole point is, is to really create a sustainable system and flywheel around learning and development because we believe there's going to be a massive talent shortage in this industry over the next several years because there's no new entrants coming into this industry. They're all leaving it as quickly as they can to go into coding or cybersecurity or whatever it is. Um, and so the companies that can figure out how to bring talent in, train them and develop them and retain them are going to win in the long run. And the companies that can't do that are going to have to pay the premium to steal them. And if you're a company that is only able to get that kind of talent to come work with you by paying more, then you're going to be in serious trouble because that's not sustainable. It might work in the beginning, but it's not sustainable. So, you know, for us, it's about focusing on that. We haven't have it figured out completely. I'm not going to imply that we do, but I will say that it started with hiring um, technical writer Dylan from Facebook, who was amazing, and Media Temple. He he was the lead technical writer for uh, Media Temple, and then at Facebook too. And he really just taught us how to um, communicate better, what to train better. It's not about replicating the uh, articles that exist on Google, but instead of writing explicitly about what your company does differently and communicating that internally. Um, started with building like, uh, you know, clear career pathing we're working on now. You know, we're looking at like, what does a thousand person company do to retain and develop talent? Well, clear career paths, incentives, leveling, um, you know, all those sorts of challenges. Uh, we're using Lattice now for doing better growth um, and IDPs, individual development plans. Hugely challenging thing to do. Um, very, very challenging. Right. I, I wouldn't even be focusing on that if I was a smaller MSP. If I was a smaller MSP, I'd just be focusing on the things that are more meaningful to the user, um, to the end user, which would be like autonomy, um, you know, involvement, inclusion, like that's a lot of that doesn't cost a lot when you're smaller and that can get the person motivated to go self learn these certain things. But as your company scales, their ability to like impact, it becomes more challenging and then it becomes more about them, which isn't a negative. Uh, an employee joining a 150 person company is really going like, uh, I would really love to learn some things personally. And I would also like to, you know, better the company, but it starts to shift a little bit more towards the individual and what they're getting out of this relationship and working here and a little bit less of like the five people in the garage trying to solve world hunger, um, which is, you know, kind of what, when you're a small company, it's just, everything's easy, you know, and like you get to sit with the CEO and you're eating with them and everyone's, you know, it's just a different experience. So I don't have the answer for that. Um, I will say it's an area that we are constantly um, trying to, to get better at, uh, but it is hard. It's really, really hard. Yeah. Great, great question, Lauren. Thank you for asking. Um, Paul mentioned that learning and development sound, especially sounds really interesting and there's a difference between learning and figuring things out. Um, so awesome. Thank you for, for commenting, kind of supporting what Marcos was saying. Now, kind of the headline of this, so I'm going to get into this. We've talked a little bit about it, but you know, you, you believe there's a big shift coming and tell us more about what that is and why you think that's coming. I mean, wherever there's a large market um, that's growing, uh, there are going to be people that try and come in and solve for it differently. And I think what's going to happen is there's going to be more money being poured into this industry um, for, for people to solve it in more unique ways. And I think that what we're going to see is more tech-enabled services start to crop up. Um, we're going to see more verticalized providers probably pop up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, it's, you know, to me, to me, I don't, I don't know where it's coming from. I don't have an Oracle, um, but it, it's just too frothy to not, um, have some serious shakeups. 
um, in my opinion. And I, and I, and to me, it's like the tooling is aged. I've talked to a bunch of the leadership at different large names I won't name. Um, and you know, many of them are trying to build what we've already built, but they're also trying to solve for their legacy. They're not willing to abandon the 2 billion they make a year, you know, dripping this ASP.net legacy crap that does device management to all of the people that are stuck on it. You know, it's like, you know, is there, why would they abandon that? They can't, they need to div- deliver their dividends, right? You know, the LPs, give me, give me my, give me my 10%, you know, every year. That's right. Can't let go of that. So it's like, somebody's going to have to come and disrupt it because it's not going to change itself. And I think one of them was a major $2 billion one was like, yeah, we're going to dedicate up to 5 million this year to build something. 5 million, you're a $2 billion company and you're only committing 5 million to disrupting your own product. So somebody else is going to do it, right? Somebody else is going to come from a different angle and do it. Um, or we're going to get to the point where we don't need any of those solutions. It's just democratized. I don't need it. We don't use it. We don't have any PSA here, you know? So, you know, or you could get one that's not particularly tailored to your industry. You could go get a, a neutral one. I mean, arguably, I don't even see the value in a PSA these days in the same way that they used to be. Um, so, yeah, I think there's just a lot of shakeup coming, and I don't know what it is um, specifically. I know we have our approach to it, and we're pretty serious about it, um, and we're very committed to that. It's going to take a long time, but but we're on a different type of path to solve that. Um, but something's going to happen. Yeah. So you were telling me related to that, you know, some the size of the market, the growth rate, you were comparing, I think, maybe the tax cab industry. So help me understand, like, why you think it's this is not just a market, why it's so ripe for this and why the timing is is really soon. It, well, simple, you know, cab drivers hate driving cabs and the customers hate getting in cabs. And, and whenever you're in a scenario where it's like both the consumer and the you know person delivering it, aka the employee of the industry, hate the industry, it's ripe for change. And the way I see it is this industry is very self-loathing. And many of the people that run MSPs and many of the people that work in MSPs love the concept of getting to work with different technology and different clients, exciting, et cetera. Um, but then they hate it as well because of the fact that it's all tied to ecosystems and, and, you know, tooling that's crap and they can't use the tools they want, et cetera. Um, and then you've got clients that are frankly assume that all of them suck. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just the markets we compete in, but I can continuously hear, um, that they don't even care to switch because they just assume that the other one's going to suck too, you know? And like, so the quality is at an all time low, um, the attrition of talent is at an all-time high. There's no new talent coming into this industry. It's like everybody's jumping off the, the decks into the ocean, um, and yet there's still a demand for it that's growing at 14% compounding annual growth. So, I mean, it's just all of the ingredients are there um, for something, but I think that uh, the problem is, is it's not interesting enough for venture capital because it's not going to have 100x. You know, It's not like software is going to solve this problem alone. Um, and so I think that's where it gets really, really interesting is when you combine people in software, that's where it could get very, very interesting. Um, and then you also have to focus on like brand, go find me a compelling brand in this industry. You won't find it. It's just like, none of them have really figured out how to build brand. None of them have figured out, you know, a lot of the core concepts of building meaningful businesses. And I think that's because a lot of them sell out too soon. There's a lot of MSPs that sold out four or five years ago that were on great career paths and they exited. Um, and now they're in the hands of private equity, which is really just about dividends, tuck-ins, roll-ups, et cetera. And I think that that's really kind of cut at the heel the potential. And so, yeah, we're probably the biggest MSP that has not taken funding. 
um, and certainly the fastest growing. I mean, the only competitors we have at the size we're at now are private equity owned, wholly, wholly owned by private equity, not growth invested. They've been completely leveraged, bought out, you know, tucked in, rolled up, whatever. Um, and so I think at our size, we have the reach now, we have the great clients, we have great ideas. We just need, you know, to basically, you know, either raise funding or whatever to go after that in a real meaningful way instead of taking the bait and just exiting. Because it's so easy to exit this and just walk away from the problems. I'm not walking away from these problems. I, I think that there's still tremendous opportunity here. And we have a passionate group of over 100 people that want to solve them. Um, and so we're just not going to take the bait and walk away. Um, and that's why I think we could do something pretty interesting here. But I'm sure there's others too that are 10, 15 people that we just don't know of yet. They're probably hiding somewhere just like Pliancy was at one point. You know, three, four years ago, we were like 15 people. Nobody had ever heard of us. And we show up on the scene and everyone's like, well, where did they come from? So mm -hmm. I'm sure there's others kind of like mm -hmm. sleepers out there that we're just not aware of that are coming. Right. Yeah. There's probably better competition for you than the uh, private equity ones uh, long term. Um, so, um, but, I guess but, but keep in mind, competition is good. Competition is good for us. It's good for everybody because we're competing with the expectations of this industry and we're competing with the reputation. So if we can fix as a group, all of us, anyone that's an MSP or anyone that's interested in fixing the price anchoring problems, the quality problems, et cetera, the attrition problems, solve it together, solve it with us. We all benefit from it. Um, it's good for everybody, right? The tide raises all boats. Um, so it's, it's not like necessarily we're, we're kind of against like those that aren't helping. That's our competitor to us, but the ones that are helping, I do private, you know, calls with them all the time. I get messages all the time. I give them all the secret sauce. I don't care. You know, if they're interested in solving this in a meaningful way, then they're on team pliancy to me. Um, and they're not a competitor. A competitor mm -hmm. is those that want to perpetuate the problem, want to continue to make it worse, want to continue to drive talent out of this industry. That's the competitor to me. Right. Well, speaking of that, uh, you used a couple of terms that I'm not sure everybody's familiar with. You talked about software. Venture capital is not going to come in here because you don't get 100 extra return. So I'm, I'm used to venture in those kind of talks. And I think it's obviously because there's a big difference in the things like margin and scalability of a MSP. But you also talked about managed or tech-enabled service providers. So tell us more about that and where you fit in that spectrum and why you think it's more than software it takes to solve this problem. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, 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 the reason that software is so exciting is it scales easier. It's got 70 to 80% gross margins. You know, there's a bunch of reasons that investors just love that. It's easy to acquire um, compared to, um, you know, a people business. Um, Tech-enabled services is kind of the blend of creating software that's specific to the problems that you're trying to solve um, and using it. I mean, you're going to see a lot more tech-enabled services over the next several years because there's going to be more and more technology that still needs to be delivered through people to solve the nuances that technology hasn't solved for. So our kind of approach to tech-enabled services is that we build software for where software can be effective, and then we deploy tail end where it can't be. And the best part about that is it allows you to kind of capture things faster than software. You can software takes sometimes a year to deploy a feature or to capture something, whereas people can start doing it by afternoon. And so I think when you blend both, you get margins that are in the middle, you know, 60% margins, let's say. Um, you get growth that's kind of in the middle as well. You're not going to scale necessarily like software, but, you know, we've had 70% growth for several years, um, you know, year over year. So, I mean, it's very possible um, and you can get great margins. So it, it's, it's, it's an interesting place to be because when you start focusing on just solving things with software, you start saying no to problems that you're really trying to solve in the first place. Whereas if you have people and software, 
you can just really build really meaningful things. There are some really big companies out there that you could call software uh, or tech-enabled services. Uber, for example, is a tech-enabled service. A lot of people don't realize that. DoorDash as well. Why? Because there's still humans delivering a large core part of that business. It's just more exciting because it's a gig economy, one which is great. We don't have to hire the people. We can just contract them or whatever. But it's still, nonetheless, Uber was a tech-enabled service, um, as is Door, DoorDash. And there's plenty of others like True Green, which is like a lawn care one, et cetera. Um, pest control systems these days, you just sign up on an app, press a button, somebody shows up, says they're five minutes away, they're spraying the mosquito spray and they're off, you know, and it tells you and you pay and you press the button. And these are all tech-enabled services. And they're really, really interesting, in my opinion. They just don't get the same attention as um, you know some of the other industries because they don't exit as well. They don't always go IPO. I mean, you got to remember, a lot of investors are just focused on exit. Nothing wrong with that. That's their business model. That's great. Um, but that also means that there's a lot of opportunity left on the table because there isn't clear exits for some businesses. You know, like Pliancy could IPO in 10 years. It could be really meaningful. But now you have to go find an example of somebody that's done that and you won't find one, right? So it's like, that's right. the challenge is when you're kind of paving a new path, you know, like you can't really point and say, well, this is the potential, you know, there is a 1700 person MSP in uh, Denmark, which is only a country of 5.5 million people um, that just exited a couple months ago for three quarters of a billion, you know, and they scaled from 200 people in 2016 to 1700 and made it really meaningful. And they use brand to do it. You know, they, they're, Denmark's a great country for brand, by the way, like their biggest export of those countries over there, Amsterdam, Netherlands, you know, whatever is all brand, you know, they have some of the best, I have a lot of friends over there, um, but they built a really meaningful brand, probably attracted a lot of talent, scaled it really quickly, got to the point where they exited for three quarter of a billion. It's probably the biggest exit in MSP history. Nobody's right. ever heard of them because it's a little country of 5.5 million. Right. So, I mean, there is huge potential, but you know, it's just not making tech crunch. Nobody gives a crap, you know, except for right. me. But that's what matters in our industry. Well, kind of related to this, Scott and asked, without a PSA, how do you handle tech accountability? Tech, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people are going, wait, hold on. You have no PSA. You have no RMM. Okay. I, like, I think I can see you built some of it with the, but how do you, is everything 100% built in-house? And did you throw out that model? And I, I want to hear you say this, but it sounds like there's a big difference in being user versus device-centric. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, keep in mind, like, don't fall victim of the built here, um, not bought, which is like... A lot of times you're like, we have to build it, we have to build it, we have to build it. We don't build everything. We use Zendesk, for example, for our ticketing system. It's a big multi-brand version of Zendesk. Yes, it's expensive, um, but it's scaled with the business. Um, but we use that um, for our ticketing. That drives into Looker. Um, we have a data team here, and we have you know a big, uh, big query database piping an insane amount of data into that, which then our data team and BizOps team use to produce meaningful metrics. I mean... I, I wish I could share my screen and show you. Oh, I probably shouldn't. Um, what we've actually <laughs> built from a data perspective is pretty insane. Um, we can predict, you know, month over month over year exactly what kind of demand we're going to have per week, per month, just because we have so much data that we've been collecting over such a long period of time. Um, we predicted our revenue this in December within 1% um, because of the data that we had based on seasonality and everything and all the data we've been collecting. It was within 1%. Wow. Um, so, you know, that kind of stuff is interesting. But anyway, the point is, is, yeah, how do we do it? We just buy different tooling and then we start to integrate it. And some of it's disparate. Guess what? You can still do these things without a PSA. It just means you have to buy different solutions and then lose the efficiency of the solutions. But efficiency is like crack. 
like don't fall victim to the fact that everything has to be in one because oftentimes if it's all in one, then it's also not best. Um, and like, that's kind of something we stopped caring about was like some of the systems we have don't integrate with the others. That's okay. We will eventually integrate it if we find that we get the value out of it, but we want to be able to capture new technology with less effort. And so we kind of stopped caring if it integrates out of the box and then built the integration if we got the value. Gotcha. I know we've got questions. We may not get to all of them. So guys, uh, feel free to drop a few more comments, but you talk about the big change for this industry. You know, you only claim to know some of it, right? Not know all of it. What do you, what should I be doing as an MSP? What's your, where should I, you know, maybe I'm a three person, maybe an eight person, maybe I'm where you were at some point. Um, what I should, what should I be looking for? What are these changes I should be aware of? Cause when I, I've talked to a few people leading it with the show and I've asked them and they said, Oh, you mean the big change is compliance. The big change is cybersecurity. And I think there's more to it than that, at least from our conversation. What's, what's your, what would you say about this? that the customer is educated. And I think that's something you have to understand that your knowledge is far ahead of what the consumer's knowledge is on these things. And you have to kind of meet the consumer with where they're at. And many of them are not hyper-focused on security and compliance and all that. They just need to fix a laptop today, or they need to get spun up with email or whatever it is. So don't feel like that sort of stuff is like because some of the bigger providers like us and others are, are farther along on that stuff that you can't still be competitive um, because there are plenty that don't have the money to pay for those solutions or to go full route on that stuff. I would just focus on if I was an MSP today, starting up today, first of all, I wouldn't. I'm, holy crap. I mean, it's a really hard business to run, um, mm-hmm. frankly, and really hard to scale. You got to remember, like, appliance is in the 1% of the 1%. Um, you know, I mean, it's very possible and certainly you know, I, I would love for all of you to achieve it, but I mean, it's really, really hard to, to get to that size. Um, but the way that, that if I was starting it today and I felt like this is my best shot to get back to appliancey type size and scale would be to be number one, incredibly patient. It's not going to happen overnight. There's no quick, cheap, easy ways to do it in the beginning. Yes. When you get bigger, you have scale and other things that you can do. Like you get to be on podcasts, thanks Damien and all these other things that probably not going to happen at one or two people. But if I was one or two people, quality is all that matters. And building meaningful relationships with those early clients, aka future fans, by the way, many of our clients that have been with us a decade are easily considered fans of ours now. They're huge references. They talk about us nonstop. They're sharing our stuff. They're referring clients to us proactively. Um, and, and that really took time to develop that fan base. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that focusing Sorry, there's somebody window peeping. Um, anyway, I would say that focusing on on really just delivering quality worth talking about and being incredibly patient for the long run. Yeah, that's, that's uh, hard that's to do. Gonna, that's what's going to move the needle. Yeah, it's hard to be patient in the long run, right? Um, and I very much can relate to what you just said. We've got to do the bigger things, the harder things. Um, so, um, we, and you got to put the time in, whether it's the development, it's understanding them. That's the other thing. You mentioned tech-enabled service. I think you said you know, appliance is a tech-enabled service. Servosity, as far as I know, is unique in terms of in just instead of backup software, it's also a tech-enabled service. We believe there's people in process that need to be brought to solve the problem in terms of managing and testing your backups and that software is a wonderful tool, but it, it is not the only thing. Um, so maybe chat GPT or some future you know bot changes that, but you know, we're not there yet. So I think that there's a big move to tech-enabled services that most MSPs are not super familiar with. So um, guys, I know that uh, 
Marcus was nice enough to give his time. So thank you for this, Marcus. You've been awesome. If anybody's interested in finding out more about you, where where should they go? My LinkedIn. Um, occasionally I spew, you know, hot garbage on, on LinkedIn. But for the most part, I'm I'm, you know, interacting with people on LinkedIn. Message me on LinkedIn. If you want to ask questions, you want to learn more about what we do, um, you want to work with us, you know, you know, whatever it is. Um, I'm, I'm an open book. Um, I'm very, very transparent. I'm all about just helping people, you know, get to, get to, you know, doing meaningful things in this industry. Once again, you're not a competitor of mine. If you care about this industry and you care about the clients and you care about the outputs, mm-hmm. you're only a competitor of, of mine. If you're perpetuating the problems, um, and driving the talent out, um, and you're not passionate. And I think that, that, um, you know, in the future, there's markets and areas that Pliancy won't be able to necessarily reach on its own. And so, you know, by getting to meet other um, operators and others in this industry that are passionate about it, maybe in verticals, Pliancy can't reach, but Pliancy can help them um, or we can work together. Uh, that's something I'm always excited about, you know, seeing if that's there's potential for that. But um, yeah, LinkedIn, find me on LinkedIn. It's just LinkedIn, whatever slash Marcus Olson. Um, connect with me. You know, I'm, I always respond to all the messages I get on there and, um, yeah, just hope to connect with people. Awesome. Thanks for that, Marcus. Uh, we've got more comments that we can get to. Thank you guys for being a part of this. This is a community. We made sure because I want to be community because I want to give back, I want you to be able to connect to him. So we've put Marcus's LinkedIn in the show notes. So if you're watching this on YouTube, on LinkedIn, wherever you're maybe watching, you should have the link in there. So thank you for your time today, Marcus. Thanks for having me. So guys, um, before we move on, I just wanted to mention uh, mspmindset.com slash news is where you're going to want to get connected to hear about all our shows every other Thursday and to get to connected people just like Marcus. So whether it's LinkedIn, whether it is Facebook or uh, YouTube or wherever, um, find us there. We also are on all the Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you consume this podcast content. So please join us. We'd love to hear you'd like to hear from. Thank you for being here today, guys. Have a wonderful day.